Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 16th, 2016, so it's 2-16-16 today. But the episode is not about 16s, it's about 17s and 32s. But 16s have a 32. Are you fascinated by number patterns? I am. Anyway, this is episode 1732 of the Survival Podcast, and we're going to talk about something most people never really think about, especially in the prepper world. Deflation. Today's show is called, What Would the End of Inflation Look Like? What if we stopped having inflation? What if we began to see the development of either a flat level or even deflationary economy? You think it can't happen? Do you think it's crazy talk? I mean, Jack, the guy on TV with the bald head, told me I needed to buy gold because inflation was coming soon. He has been saying that for 15 years, just saying. But actually, I think that there is a real reason to examine this today. Even if it's not your topic du jour, I think you will enjoy today's show because as we dig into the concept of deflation, you'll get an, a lesson in why we need to avoid what I call binary thinking. I seldom fail to be amazed today uh, in any situation whatsoever that gives me the opportunity to observe it for how ingrained and programmed binary thinking is into the minds of the average American. And there's an interesting thing when you get a society programmed into binary thinking, you know, Democrat, Republican, etc., When they, when they, when they have like a bipartisan agreement, if you want to call it that, in the public, the other side just vanishes like a fart in the wind. More on that in a bit. Before we get there though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontala saying to me, Hey, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show. And I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to 
just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just, just stick with us. And when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later, it was February of the next year, that we launched the MSB. And we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original Survival Podcast sponsor, because they were first, and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out SafeCastle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping, uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from SafeCastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original survival podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of my support brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at the Bob Wells plant of the week. Every week, Bob Wells has a plant for us that's perennial in nature, meaning we can plant it once in our backyard and produce food for ourselves and our families and our communities for a long time. This week, it's the Halls Hardy Almond. It is adaptable from zones 6 to 9. The Halls Hardy Almond is a pretty and productive tree. This attractive tree yields large crops of crunchy almonds in the fall, and its lovely pink flowers make it a landscape standout in the spring. This tree grows wherever peaches thrive, bears in two to three years, matures to be 15 to 20 feet tall, ripens in late September, and is self-pollinating. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape, including fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty fruit trees. Find this plant and more at BobWellsNursery.com. I've got a couple of them here. Um, peaches do really good for me. The almonds, the Halls Hardy and the Texas Mission, have not been as hardy For me, as the peaches, they've had a little bit more trouble getting established and getting good growth rates on them. But a couple that I have in some pretty good sweet spots seem to be doing pretty well. And remember, if it'll grow here, it'll probably grow anywhere. I'm kind of a masochist, I guess, with choosing properties and always seem to make my job a little bit harder. Many of you know my rock issues, so I won't get into that. But I also have extremely alkaline soil and uh, extreme climate extremes as well. So if it'll do here, uh, well, then it'll probably do anywhere. So if you have deep soils... Six to nine uh, for your uh, zones. I think you should give this plant a shot. When they flower, they are beautiful. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. They are absolutely beautiful. And the fact that they're self-fertile is helpful as well. With that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1732 because the episode is 1732. I have Skittles arrive in New York and Texas. Hmm. Not the candy. You'll have to read it for yourself. Because I'm going to read a different one today. I also have Poor Richard's Almanac and Modern PR. And I have George Washington and so-called President's Day. Uh, I am going to read for you Poor Richard's Almanac in modern PR. The word almanac comes from an Arabic word meaning calendar. Such calendars have grown from simple lists of religious reminders to include the phrases, phases of the moon, information about bloodletting, and predictions from Nostradamus. Print shops love almanacs because, like any calendar, you need a new one every year. Thus, they are a steady source of income. Benjamin Franklin has been printing two popular almanacs, 
but he has had a falling out with the authors, so he writes his own under a pen named Richard Saunders. Along with normal information expected in almanacs, poor Richard provides his thoughts on life in the form of proverbs. Some of these proverbs are original, and others are well-known but reworked, such as, Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. He that lies down with dogs shall rise up with fleas. Haste makes waste, no gains without pains. God helps those that help themselves. None preaches better than the ant, and she says nothing. My take by Alex Shrug. Franklin knew what to do to get free publicity. For example, he predicted the date and hour of the death of a main competitor, Titan Leeds. It was a prank, and Leeds responded by calling Franklin a conceited scribbler, a liar, and a fool. Thus, Leeds mentioned Franklin and poor Richard in his own almanac. The exchange became a running joke. When Leeds finally died, Franklin, in the name of poor Richard, carried to carried, claimed to be receiving letters from Leeds' ghost. This was outrageous and thus quite popular. Um, you know, I, I really find Franklin to be one of our most interesting and, and coolest founding fathers, honestly. Like, if I could go back and just hang out, like, if I could go back and meet somebody, you know, and have in-depth discussions about liberty and things like that, the, the guy I'd want to meet is Thomas Jefferson. But if I could go back in time, what I was going to be able to do is like hang out with somebody, like in pubs and bars and just experience life at the time. It would be Frank. Uh, it would be uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, definitely. But do you know what Benjamin Franklin was? Benjamin Franklin was a troll, like an internet troll. Like, and this guy Leeds took the bait. Think about that. One of our coolest founding fathers, one of history's first recorded trolls. Uh, but at least in this instance, he didn't. Do, well, he did do it anonymously under a pen name. This is this is just greatness. Anyway. Benjamin Franklin, troll. When you just thought you had heard everything you were ever going to hear on the Survival Podcast, you hear one of our founding fathers was a troll, but I think the case speaks for itself there. Anyway, next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. If you want to help support the work we do, just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more there, and I'll leave it at that today since we just ran through a sale and I had a huge swing of, of sign-ups. Anyway, uh, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Again, I want to talk to you today about inflation and deflation, and actually really look at what would the end of inflation look like. Here, here's what I kind of want to start out by saying. I am not saying this is going to happen today. Because I know I can hear the keyboards going now, guys. You're, there's, it's going to be in... Look, I'm not saying it's going to... And I get emails like that. You can, you can almost hear the person's exasperation as they're typing it and the pounding of the keyboard as they get madder and madder because you've said something they disagree with, especially when it's somebody that usually agrees with you. It really seems to kind of go nutty at that point. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm proposing that it could happen And it's interesting to take a look at the half-sister of inflation from time to time. See, the reality is most people, especially pet preppers, fear inflation to such a degree, a degree, they don't tend to comprehend two things. And one is controlled inflation is absolutely essential to the economy we have based on current management practices. Please note that necessary does not mean good. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying for the way the central banks run our economy today, it is essential to have inflation for the economy to continue to function. Okay? Two, is that deflation, a deflationary economy is not good 
just because you feel that inflation or too much inflation is bad. See, our current society has been programmed just like a computer to think in binary terms. Ones and zeros are the only inputs and outcomes. If Democrats are bad, Republicans must be good. Okay? If you don't like Coke, you must like Pepsi. If you are not religious, you must be an atheist. If you don't want war, you must be unpatriotic. Now, I know many of you have broken that programming, okay? But you have to admit that is the, the average across the board for most Americans. That's how they think. You're anti-war. Oh, you're a commie pinko. Wait a minute. I think communists had a lot of wars. I, I, so you're pro-war? I support troops, right? I mean, the, the, the ingrained brain, like, of course, I mean, I don't think anybody is more anti-war than a well-informed soldier. Dwight David Eisenhower said that he hated war as only a soldier could. Yet we have such programming today that to say, I don't think we should be fighting this war, is immediately attacked by one branch and embraced by the other until the war starts, and then everybody dogpiles on. Crazy, isn't it? And I think you can be, be begin to see With any level of critical thinking, this system is very useful to those in charge. With such programming in place, people are easily stratified into two camps of the false dichotomy. The reasons for this are clear enough. Yet it's important to comprehend that even those of us who now see the matrix are often controlled by the residual effects of it. This is often the case when the majority of the dichotomy has what Congress would call bipartisan agreement. That something is, in fact, bad or good. You see, while the left and the right wings of the economy vulture are divided on most issues, the wings do meet at the back of the vulture. Almost everyone agrees, for instance, that the world is round. Terrorism is bad. Freedom is better than slavery, just to name a few. Another one is inflation. Almost everyone with half a brain agrees that too much inflation is bad because, well, it is. And the effects are easy to see. When a society has been so perfectly trained to see only ones and zeros, and the vast majority finally agree on something, the other side tends not to be examined. Today, we are going, however, to do just that. I mean, you understand, that's where we're at in this, because that's how people think, well, if inflation is, 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 is bad, deflation must be good. And since there's no real divide between Democrats and Republicans, left and right, rich and poor, etc., you don't, you don't hear this debate. Occasionally, some show on economics will bring out a little dog and pony show about deflation versus inflation, and generally it'll convince you that inflation is good, but just not too much. So it's still a consensus. And when that happens, we tend to just say, well, it must be. And so whatever the other possibility is, it gets written off. And I think that's what's largely happened to deflation as a probable outcome uh, for our society. And a, and a big problem, by the way, in many ways. It's not all bad. I'm going to actually give you the goods of deflation before I give you the bads of deflation. But the bads, because of the way our economy has been managed for over a 100 years, outweigh the good, especially during the onslaught, and especially if we're going to have a system of control that's going to say we have to prevent it, we can't embrace it, we can't use it, we can't see the good in it, we have to restore the old, and we have to fight to bring back moderate inflation. Moderate planned inflation of 2% to 4% is the goal of the Federal Reserve. So if, you're, if, you, if you have deflation occurring, like all the forces in control are trying to push it back up, 
and everybody's still waiting for that. Nobody's adapting. It can be very, very painful. And there's a huge, huge bomb that goes off late into it that is massive, and some of you are already there, and some of you won't get there until I get to it and talk about it. But I want to start out with why this could happen. Why could it become a deflationary spot? When everybody's worried about inflation, they're printing money left and right. Yeah, and they did. They recently printed more money than... like If you look at the amount of money printed from 2008 till today, it outweighs the amount of money printed from the prior 20 years. Where's the inflation from it? See, again, you, you have got to understand that inflation is not just the money quantity. It's how fast that quantity of money then moves through and multiplies in the economy. So that's the velocity of money. So you can print a gajillion dollars, stick it in the banks, and if they don't lend it out, if they don't do anything with it, if they don't invest it, if the money stays stagnant, it will have little to no effect on inflation or deflation. It's just there. It has to be used for its effects to actually trickle through the economy and cause whatever event it would cause based on what's been done. Okay, And right now, we are at a point where there's so much money that the amount needed to kick off what you would call a hyperinflation is insane. It, it's not like the Weimar Republic. It, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You, you've reached a point. So you kind of have to look at it like this. Do you understand why it's so hard for us to build a craft that would approach light speed in outer space. I mean, we think there's a vacuum there, there's no resistance, etc. But there is resistance in moving an object through space. And as you increase the velocity of the craft, the amount of energy necessary to increase by one more percent continues to go up exponentially. It gets harder and harder to push it faster. When you look at an economy the size of the United States and the current volume of money that's already in existence, the amount of money necessary to push inflation further without rapid growth of the economy itself, which no one sees anytime soon, by the way, becomes a limiting factor to inflation itself. There are laws and rules that no matter what an economist running a central bank wants to do that sets limits on them. And this is one of them. The next thing is, and this ties straight into it, is we have le level to negative population growth in a developed world. In other words, we're not making babies. We're not growing. So how many new houses are you going to really build for a population that doesn't increase? Think about that. Especially as you start to realize you have people dying off, and then you have this kind of at a point where you stop having enough new population growth and the ability of people to actually purchase something like a house initially is in decline. So you start having houses sitting open and vacant, and we have 2008, 2009 all over again. Though right now we're in the exact opposite in some areas. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but what's going on in the real estate market here scares the shit out of me as a bubble. But in general, if it, when you start to have less people, you have less need of houses. You have less need of cars. You don't need more new cars if there's less people. So just the population stagnation alone 
is, is a recipe for an eventual deflation. The next is we're expanding what we call the developed world. More and more places that are still the developing world are becoming developed economies. And an interesting thing happens. It doesn't matter the religion. It doesn't matter the culture. It doesn't matter. When an economy is developed sufficiently, population moderates. Jeff Lawton talked about this. But this is, this is well-known. Demographic researchers have said this for a long time. This is why the projection for global population levels into 2050 and goes into decline by the World Health Organization. Because as you get to a situation where people are reasonably assured that they're going to survive and their children are going to survive, they tend to have less children. And the more they have as far as material gains, the more they tend to protect those gains by having less children so they have less expense. And you get into a situation where you have a population that has a reproduction rate of like 1.6 or less, and your population actually begins to decline. As you expand into the rest of the world, you actually begin to curtail the expansion of the population, even at places that have traditionally been producing lots and lots more people. And then there's an irony to even the, the, the undeveloped world with the high-density population and rapid reproduction rates due to stress and survival instinct. They don't really affect the global economy very much because they don't have any money. They're, they're, they're serfs. They're modern-day serfs. They're living hand-to-mouth. Their, their primary purchases are wheat and sorghum and soy to try to survive, and rice. They don't drive the, the global GDP at all. So even if those areas continue to increase in population, they don't create demand until they're developed. And as they're developed, they're moderating population. See, just like the total volume of money that we've produced and the total volume of money that the European banks have produced, has kind of hit this, this wall. The human population is also hitting this demographic wall. It's just not growing like it used to. And that's a good thing resource-wise for the planet, but we've not built the economy for that eventuality. No thoughts gone into it whatsoever. The economy requires growth to function. That's how it was built and designed. The next is you're going to have a coming labor demand reduction. I, we've talked about this a lot. John Pugliano has been on a talk with, about a lot with me too. But every time we automate something that's currently done by people, we reduce the number of people that need to have jobs. Now, if you start having less people and a smaller number of those people that exist are employed because technology is taking the jobs away. And again, people that say, they've said this forever. They have said this forever. But there's, again, everything comes in trends. And this is reaching its pinnacle now. This is actually beginning to swing in, and you're starting to see countless jobs that are being taken away by technology, and we're only just cracking the ice here. I mean, anesthesiologists will be losing jobs. Land surveyors losing jobs. Now, how, how differentiated are those two professions? Anesthesiologist and a guy that can look through a, through a transit level? I mean, this is reality. We now have bulldozers that can do the job of an operator run by a GPS with more precision than an operator. That's a fundamental reality. Now, well, there's places with, you know, difficult landscapes and all, and yeah, okay, sure. But general highway construction, 
You're going to watch machines driving down the road by themselves. I'm telling you right now. Or the guy that's in there, all he knows how to do is push the stop button if something goes wrong. Minimum wage slave. Not a high dollar operator like it used to be. Even if you end up with a machine that just requires less expertise to operate, then you pay the person less. And since it's more efficient, you hire less people. So we have a declining population, a shrinking workforce, a reduction of demand, a reduction of income. How in the world does that create an inflationary economy? And if you don't have inflation, you either have stagnation or deflation. I mean, there's your three choices. See, that's one thing here. This isn't binary, but it is you know, tertiary. You only have three choices. You, you either have some degree of inflation, complete stagnation, or deflation. And complete stagnation is unlikely. Stasis doesn't work in an economy. Um, the next thing is we are seeing a return by many people to common sense, saving, and lasting value. Now, these are all, you put these in the, they're a good camp. But remember, good is relative. Good is relative. So, if you're a kind of person that always plays it safe and would never jump out of an airplane, you would think that's a good thing for the likelihood that you won't die. Until the plane's going down, then there's a parachute and you refuse to use it. Okay? Our economy is built to function a certain way. And it is not built for the majority of people, especially during a natural contraction of population and employment, to think along the lines of saving their money for a rainy day, not going out and getting a lot of credit, not taking bets on things, and buying things that are designed to last for the rest of our lives. We, the, the, the manufacturers of today want to sell you a $12.50 Walmart shovel, Versus an $85 high-end, custom-made, tough, last-for-the-left-of-your-life shovel. Why? Because if you buy the $12.50 shovel, when it breaks, you're just going to throw it away. And you're going to go get another one. They can even put lifetime warranty on it. So you'll buy it at the heat of the moment. You'll never even remember it was there. You'll think this is a piece of junk. You'll go buy one a little bit better because it looks a little bit better. It also says lifetime warranty. They know this. They need a, a, a cash flow. A continuous expansion of cash. And as long as there's a little bit of inflation with it, even if you buy the same shovel, next year it's $13 or $13.25. But if you have a deflationary economy, then they have to sell the same product for less. And if you go out and you're willing to spend, save your money instead of using credit and buy the $85, $90 super-duper shovel, You're never coming back again for the rest of your life. And if something does go wrong with it that can be repaired, you can bet your ass you'll fix it. Okay? One or two people doing that, the totality of my audience, 150,000 people doing that, doesn't swing the U.S. GDP at all. But it's getting to be much more common than that. And our millennial generation is wising up, especially those that are in the millennial generation that are a bit older. The late 20s, early 30s guys, as they do find employment, as they do find jobs, as they do get a foothold, they're not investing. They're saving money. They've been called the Ben Franklin generation. They've been chastised for it. You guys keep doing what you're doing. All right? But they're saving their money. 
At the same time, older people are selling off all their securities and spending the money and dying and leaving it behind to the younger generation who's putting it away under the mattress, metaphorically, like their great-grandparents and, and great-great-grandparents taught the rest of us to do, and we forgot all about it because we went to sense. Uh, we lost our sense. Now, again, this sounds good, but good is relative to the situation. The next thing is the success of deflationary currencies. Bitcoin is a deflationary currency. I don't think people really understand that that's why Bitcoin went from a fraction of a dollar to dollar parity to, to multi-hundreds of dollars per unit. And even though it had a big peak when everybody jumped in and tried to invest in it and make money off it or whatever, then it came down and it hit like this really level continuity. And it, it it's got, you know creeped down a little more, a little more, and then just slowly, slowly creeping back up. Why? It's deflationary. As a, as a currency... It is designed to be deflationary, so it actually encourages saving. It encourages you to accept it. Because if I take Bitcoin and just hold on to it, and it buys more tomorrow, that's like interest from the bank. And Bitcoin has worked. And, and the truth is that the natural flow and function of an economy really is deflationary. It really is, as... Production yields efficiency, and as efficiency yields repeatability and availability, the cost of the units go down. We see this with technology all the time. What was the, what, what was the price of the first DVD player? You can't even find a DVD player today. Who the hell buys a DVD? I mean, there's still some out there, but really, who buys a DVD player in a role with Netflix and streaming on-demand video and Apple TV with, you know, your, 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 vid, your DVDs are now movies that you buy that magically appear on your box that you can send on any other box you want to. This is that's where we're at with this now. But people say, well, see, that's just technological evolution. But no, it's, what was, what did the first car cost? What did the first car cost? See, when you actually have a well-run and ordered economy, the cost of new items should go down over time and then reach some level of stasis. But if the currency is strong, the currency itself can become stronger over time. And if you design a currency to do this, you actually can make it do it. Now, people will ask, well, how, how was Bitcoin designed to be deflationary? Because Bitcoin used a lifetime cap and fractionalized model. So we fractionalize money by making more of it. Bitcoin actually fractionalizes money by making it into smaller pieces. So there will only ever be, I think it's 21 million Bitcoins. That's it. There'll never be 21 million in one. And I think that the algorithm's written way, way out to 2140. So, but like 11 million over half of the Bitcoins that will ever exist were already mined. And that means it's like a finite resource. Think of it like silver in, in the rocks. And every year, there's less left to go pull out. And it takes more effort and more energy to get one out. You could get out, it was like a gold rush in the beginning with Bitcoin. You little app and run on a phone and start chunking out some Bitcoin. Now they still have apps to do that, but you ain't getting very much. We're down, you know, we're, we're now at the point where people are going out and panning the streams for gold nuggets for Bitcoin. 
And you can only get so much. And the big dredges and sluice boxes still can only get so much. But we'll be eventually down to a point where it's all that's left is a little bit here and there that people are finding with metal detectors. So that means that as that resource gets absorbed and used, every time a new person says, hey, this Bitcoin thing sounds kind of cool, tries it out, likes it, and starts using it, there's more people pulling more from a resource that's not expanding anymore. And that means that the, the value of the individual Bitcoin goes up. And the way we compensate for this is it's almost infinitely fractionable. It's not like a dollar, you can only get down to cents. So we could get to a point where one one-thousandth of a Bitcoin right, is, is enough to buy a computer. Okay, So this might actually sound attractive. And if you actually designed an economy to function on a currency that didn't lose value, that encouraged its savings, and, and all of the things I'm about to talk about, it could be good. But just understand, the volume of money we have, the level to negative population growth of the developed world, expansion of what we call the developed world, the irony that growth outside the developed world doesn't drive GDP, and we're going to reduce labor demands and reduce employment in the future, these are all reasons that Bitcoin could happen, I'm sorry, that, that deflation could happen, and Bitcoin's success is proof that it works. Okay? Let's talk about the good of deflation. The first one is deflation rewards savers. If you have deflation of, let's say, 2% a year, it is exactly the opposite of inflation. Let's say right now you get $10,000 and you literally do put it in your mattress. Please don't do that. There's better ways to save cash than in your mattress. But let's, for the sake of argument, say you put $10,000 in your mattress. And let's say inflation, inflation this year, is uh, 4%. So you have 4% inflation on $10,000. It's $400. Bucks. All right? Use round numbers so it's easy. So what that basically means is the inflation monster climbs through your window, goes under your bed and goes, pulls out $100 bills and goes, one, two, three, four. Ha, 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 ha. Now he's count, count, guy. what is he, count, what's the guy's name? Count, whatever his name is, the count from uh, Sesame Street, right? Wa, ha, ha. He folds your 400 bucks puts it in his pocket, and walks away. That's basically what happens with, with inflation. Now, the reality is that the numbers stay there. Those four, $400 bills don't go away. Your $10,000 just now purchases what $9,600 did the year before. So you, you've now got $9,600 in value, but $10,000 in numbers. Okay. Now, imagine that you have deflation of 4%. Deflation of 4%. You put your $10,000 in your mattress. At the end of the year, if you pull it out and spend it, it buys what $10,400 would have bought. And if this continues over time, you can see that the saver is it doesn't have to take big risks in order to build wealth. So it becomes much easier for a common person, a common everyday person, even a low-paid laborer, Anybody providing any kind of actual value for any reasonable return on their labor, not necessarily a job, right, but something they're doing to earn income, is able to actually acquire, accumulate wealth, and it's not eroded. So that's that's one way to look at it. Um, the next thing is it favors productive individuals. If you have a deflationary economy, 
then people actually get a little bit stingier with their money. They, they don't just piss it away. Because they know it actually is worth saving it. And since there's not this like exorbitant availability of credit, because credit's a losing game as a lender in a deflationary economy, then <laughs> you, you, you have this situation where people start saying, hey, um, I don't really need all this stuff. You have the, the generation of fix-it-yourself come back, the DIY generation on the rise. All of these things are indicators that we're on the edge of a, a possible deflationary system. And once you get into that, the person that is genuinely productive, the person that really is bringing value, is easy to differentiate from all of the fluff that's around them, and they tend to build good business, whether it's just from, from hiring themselves out or actually producing a product as a business or a service as a business, and they get a lot of loyalty. And the income that they're able to generate, since it's not eroded and they don't have to place it at risk, is easy to kind of put aside and accumulate wealth with. The next thing is, deflation lowers entry-level major purchases. If you are a young person today looking at buying your first home, you're like, holy shit, how do I possibly do this? And I think that people in my generation don't understand how screwed these younger people are with home purchases. I purchased my first home, I think I was 28 years old. I was making about $40,000 a year in income. And I bought my first home, a three-bedroom, two-bath home, in a nice neighborhood, two-story, nice little suburban lot, $84,250. Try that today. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you, though. A lot of these young people are like 26, 28 years old. They are not making $35,000 to $40,000 a year. That was kind of like right before I got into to sales and, and really increased my income level. I was working still construction outside plant. I guess I was 26 now that I think about it. I was 26 when I bought my first house. And I was making about right around forty grand with overtime and all of that. Now, a 26-year-old today making $40,000 feels pretty good about themselves. If they go try to buy that same house, it's almost what, 18 years ago now, that house, we just looked it up on Zillow, 184. 184. What's the difference there in house payments? About $1,000 a month. That's the difference. They're making the same money. And if you have an inflationary economy, one of the places where it really is realized is in real estate because credit availability is such that it's going to unrealistically inflate the value of real estate. If people had to pay cash for houses, man, or even put 50% down or 25% down for a standard mortgage, mortgages would not be being written for the value that they are right now. And houses would not be selling the way that they are right now. So in a deflationary economy, if you actually start to drag down real estate prices, it's bad for the people holding real estate, but it's good for the people that want to buy. And it allows, especially if you split kind of real estate into like starter real estate and a long-term real estate, it kind of splits that divide. And the, the stuff that's more like where you're going to live for the rest of your life has much more stability in its pricing because it doesn't go up for sale as often. So starter homes become more affordable in a, in a, in a recession. Uh, I'm not sorry, recession, but a deflationary economy, which in our society does lead to a recession. Um, 
Deflation also favors trade, local trade, and community interaction. Our, our, our country was stronger at the neighborhood level during the Great Depression, probably than it's ever been since. Maybe the war years to a degree, but so many men were gone, people had to rely on each other. But in a deflationary economy where people begin to actually accumulate wealth at the individual level, people begin to see the value in doing business with individuals versus giant corporations. And the giant corporation doesn't function well in a deflationary economy because it runs on a credit-based system. Not just credit to the consumer, but its own credit. Because it's borrowing money to produce items or import items or market items or sell items or stock items. And it has to have some inflationary assistance, some insurance there, so that that model will function. It doesn't work without inflation. Because I put the money in the product today, and by the time the product comes to market, inflation has made it such that my return on the product's delivery and development has gone up. So when we get into a situation where we have a deflationary system, we start to build stronger ties to doing business with the guy down the road, going to Steve's Coffee Shop instead of Starbucks, that type of thing. And that's a good thing. And, and that leads to the next one. Um, deflation is an anti-monopoly system. If you, if you look at the game Monopoly, right, it's, it's perfectly named. You, you, the way you win is by controlling everything and having all the money. Now, as a kid, I grew up with parents you know, that, that had parents that were from the Depression era. Okay? So my grandparents were Depression-era grandparents on all, on all sides. War-era grandparents, the whole nine yards, and coal mining on one side. Coal mining in central Pennsylvania, living through the Depression, living through the war years. You don't get more conservative with cash than those people. So the first time I ever played Monopoly, you get a certain amount of money and you buy stuff. And I was always like, I want to buy the bargain properties, not the expensive properties. And you lose. Then you realize to win this game, I have to buy the expensive properties, and I have to buy everything. But then at a certain point, you kind of run out of cash flow. So the only way to get more cash, to, to buy more, to build more, is to mortgage the property you're already holding for credit. Well, just mentally, from my grandparents, I didn't want to, and I, you lose Monopoly. And then you realize the way you win the game of Monopoly, if you land on something, you buy it. If you're out of money, you mortgage whatever you have. You just keep doing it. You just keep doing it faster and quicker than everybody else. Get a little bit of luck, and you can win the game. And it makes the game go on forever when everybody starts playing that way until one big fail-swoop crash, and it all goes to one side. Deflationary economies don't work that way. Because people, instead of buying a property and buying another property and building hotels, metaphorically, what people do is they buy a property and they stick with it. They stick with it because they know, actually, this property would probably sell for a little bit less five years from now than I'm paying for it right now. So the only way that I can preserve my investment is I have to increase the value of that property through improvements through maintaining it well, through developing it. These are the things that I've got to do. And if I don't do them, I'm going to have a property that literally is an economic bomb underneath me. So it a deflationary economy requires people to invest in their property. You have to plant trees. You have to put up fences. You have to build sheds. You have to do things that make your property worth more than the day you bought it. And it really incentivizes people to go out and find 
undervalued properties, properties with problems, fixer-uppers, and fix them up. Not to flip them, but to live in them. It leads to the restoration of entire neighborhoods eventually. Because when people can't get money because the credit's not free-flowing, it drives down what they can afford to pay. So they start looking to, here's a neighborhood. The, the, the prices are just on their back, and people have given up on it. And if we bring enough life into this neighborhood, we can restore it, we can buy these properties at a song. Kind of like what's going on in places like St. Louis and Chicago right in Detroit right now. But don't think those, those mid-tier, lower-end suburbs can't become the Detroits of tomorrow. They're already on their way to doing it. Last but not least, it, it, kind of coming back to rewarding savers, but really driving it home, it basically pays you interest to hold money. You actually earn a return by not spending. The item will cost less tomorrow if I wait. My money will be worth more tomorrow if I wait. So generally, people build individual wealth at a higher level, not just because they earn a return by not spending, but because it makes sense to save, and therefore people develop good habits with managing their personal wealth. They start thinking about the value of who and what they are versus what some guy in a suit who's a relationship salesman, financial liar, says they could be making by investing in something way over on Wall Street that they don't understand. So the only reason you'll buy stocks in companies you don't understand today, because the guy that smiled and came in and set up your 401k for your company said to do so, is we live in an inflationary, credit-based economy where it generally works out okay over time. That's the only reason. Because you don't, most of you out there do not understand the investments you're holding right now. You really don't. Some of you do, and those of you who do shouldn't be offended by what I'm saying, because you know damn well if you understand your investments, most people don't. Okay? Now, that all sounds good. Well, let me ask you a question. Is 20 gallons of gasoline good? You know, if you came driving by my house and I said, you know, how's your tank? He said, it's almost empty. I said, hold on. I brought four five-gallon gas cans, refuse to take no for an answer, pop open your thing and dump 20 gallons of gasoline in your vehicle. Is that good? What if you drive a diesel? What happens now? <laughs> And it takes a fortune to fix that problem. It's a nightmare. You got to pull the tank off. You got to drain everything out of that system. It's thousands of dollars to fix the problem. But the gas was good for everybody else. That's what I'm trying to drive home here. Deflation works well in an economy that's based on deflation or based on some level of stasis or based on a lot of stability. To almost no inflation. If you actually design the system to run that way, if you design a car to run on gasoline, it does great on gasoline. Okay? If you pour kerosene in it or diesel fuel or cherry juice, you break it. And that's, that's what deflation does to an economy optimized and actually requiring inflation. It, it, think of it this way. For our economy, if our economy is going to run like a Ferrari, the best that it can, inflation of 2.5%, that's, that's, if, if high-test gas actually made a difference, that's high-test gas. Okay, It starts knocking and pinging at 1%. You got a little bit of water in the gas. 
It's still okay. It's still going to be fine. Eventually, it'll purge itself out. You get a new tank full of the good stuff, and you'll be off to the races, okay? At a half percent deflation, a half percent decline, you're in danger of ending up on the side of the road for a significant period of time with a major repair bill. At a 3% to 4% deflation over a year or two, you blow the motor. You got to rebuild the fleet. And you either have to rebuild the fleet to run, optimize for this inflation thing again and get it going again, or you have to rebuild the fleet to run on a different fuel altogether. Which one do you think the people in power are going to want to do? Okay? So the bad of deflation. When you have deflation, you have an immediate loss of jobs. Immediately. And you specifically have the people whose jobs aren't necessary lose their jobs. And this is where people got their ass chaffed with me back during the recession of 2008-2009 when I said a lot of you that lost jobs, your jobs were unnecessary. See, people take that to mean you're lazy, you don't work hard, you're not a good person, you weren't you know, loyal to your company. None of those things have anything to do with whether or not your job is necessary. Your job being necessary means if I said to you tomorrow... Frank, it's been great. Mary, it's been great. Really appreciate you guys giving me all these years, but just can't afford to have you around anymore. Here's your severance package. Go see HR. Bye-bye now. And you leave. My company keeps working. That's all that it means if I say your job's not necessary. I don't need you to keep my company running at a level that I'm happy with. Now, if you start thinking about that, it'll scare the shit out of a lot of you because you'll realize... If I didn't go to work tomorrow, people might be pissed, but in a week, would they really care? Would they really care? Especially if they couldn't replace me. If, if they didn't hire somebody to do my job and the company could keep going, you're in deep shit the second we go into just a fraction of inflation. And the bigger the company, the more that's true. Because a bigger company has the resources to look ahead and see these deflationary episodes and immediately say to, to management and mid-management, we need the 10%, 5%, 3% of our lowest performing and least essential employees off the job now. But the economy is still good. But it won't be next month. It won't be next quarter. That's how these companies start. The, the smart companies get rid of those jobs. And here's the thing. They never, ever, ever, ever come back. Those jobs, once they're eliminated, if there's going to be fluff back in the company, people that are unnecessary, they come into different venues in different ways. Once a department gets rid of 5% of their people and their department still runs and still functions, and they end up realizing that they got rid of 5% and there's like two other, three other people in that department that actually were just ass clowns and should have went too, and they fire them and they, they hire because of a glut in available talent Two or three people to take over for those that are really good because the talent's available. Because a lot of the people get pushed out the bottom, they fall down one tier and are overqualified for what they take. So let's say A was a high-level department, B was a mid-level department. Bill and Tom get laid off of an A department. The B department leans out, figures out they have two other ass clowns, and gets rid of them. And then they, they, the B team takes on two A team members. Now they really don't need they really don't need those other people. That doesn't mean you weren't good. You might be down at the C level now or the D. 
You might be your life on the D list. Like, uh, what's her name? Kathy, the redhead chick, right? I mean, this is reality. This is what inflation does. It makes companies look at what they're doing and say, we don't need to be hire we don't need to be employing this many people even if you just have a large company freeze hiring they immediately begin to reduce the workforce because of people retiring people quitting natural turnover they do things to make people quit so they don't have to fire them they do things like say you they require you to take your personal days that's always a bad sign they say you're required to take at least you know 10 personal days this year You know, or you can have no, they start telling you, you know, our normal limit, you can accumulate up to like five weeks of vacation time known. By the end of the year, if you're not down to two and a half weeks, we're going to take it away from you. You better use it or lose it, right? These are all these signs that companies are beginning their own internal capital controls. And this usually is occurred because of deflationary uh, moments in the economy. The next thing is, if you're an investor and you're leveraging debt, to invest. So instead of investing my money, I'm going to go borrow money at interest and invest it. You lose a lot more often than you than you do during an inflationary period. Because if I'm investing in something with borrowed money, as long as inflation exceeds how much I'm paying in interest, I'm going to win. And if inflation and the interest are the same, I'm level So any return on the investment is positive. When I begin to have to pay back the debt with money that's stronger, believe it or not, I end up in a bad situation because it's harder to accumulate more money to pay back the debt. Everything in business that's, that's about borrowing money and leveraging it is, is, is based on the assumption that overall we'll have an inflationary growth-based economy. As soon as you begin contraction, those bets don't pay off anywhere near as good as they used to. And people charge you more to loan you money during deflation. Well, why? Because I am taking money in a 2% deflation that will give me a 2% return. No matter what I do, it'll give me a 2% return. Period. I don't have to do shit. I don't have to risk anything. It'll give me a 2% return. You want to borrow money at 5%. I'm risking all the money I'm loaning you for technically now a 3% return. If I would be willing to do that 5% in the past, right? now I'm going to want 7-8%. So the cost of money to borrow it goes up at a time when risking it and the value of risking it goes down. So don't cheer when you hear investors leveraging debt lose. Because some people say, yay, those Wall Street clowns. Yeah, but do you understand what it means for the whole economy? And then, you know, just kind of tied in with that, the ability to borrow money declines and the cost of borrowing that money goes up. So remember I said it would, would make it easier for young people to borrow money, to, to go in and buy their first home? That's not what I said. I said it lowers their cost of entry. It doesn't necessarily make it easier. It might make it a lot harder because the, the ability of them to get the mortgage or the cost of the mortgage goes up. So if I take... Interest rates and push them up. At the same time, I push property values down. If I equal them out, you can come up to the situation where the same home that sells for a lot less costs the same amount to live in. You start looking at, go to a mortgage table, mortgage calculator, and start playing with interest rates. 
go from a 3% interest rate to a 7% interest rate. And look at the difference in the cost of the property. Now, here's the other thing that, that, that's, that's bad for real estate in particular. The town of uh, Scumbag Taxville, right? Because that's the town of every town is Scumbag Taxville. Uh, it is, is making a significant portion of its revenues for schools and roads and other things through taxing of property. Now, their entire system is predicated on the fact that the value of your property will go up and therefore the amount they can assess tax to you will go up. And we've seen historically that when the value of property goes down, they don't give you a tax cut. They don't say, well, now your property's worth less. They don't reassess it lower. They'll, in fact, reassess it higher during a depression. They tried it with me, and I went down there and beat the brains in with, with logic and, and numbers. But I still didn't get the property to go, to, to be assessed lower than it originally was. Right? So if the assessment was 120 initially, and they said it was 139.5, the hell it is. And the value of the property is actually 110 during a depression. Well, that's fine. You're back to your 120. So these young people and anybody trying to buy a house is going to have the same high taxes because the, the counties, the, the, the cities, etc. cannot afford to cut property taxes now because they're stuck in the same situation. they got all these people retire and they got to pay pensions for it. They're not like a company that can just lay people off. They can lay people off. They still have this huge burden that they can't escape from. And that's why they're pushing everything in government right now into private pensions. While they're telling you, we need to save Social Security, that's because it's their money. That's because it's their money. Even the Army is pushing its soldiers into basically 401Ks. I've talked to many law enforcement officers. The law enforcement pension that used to be the gold standard. I mean, if you were going to have a job with a pension at the end of it, man, it was a, it was a cop. No, nope. 401Ks basically now. Because they know this. They know that the burden of the retiree, especially if you get into a attraction of the value of money, Right? So the value of money goes up, but the availability of money goes down. The ability to tax goes down. These, these little towns all over the country will start blowing up like, like nuclear bombs. Poof, poof, bankrupt, 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 bankrupt. Everybody thinks inflation. Deflation is what causes that to happen. First it's the little towns, then it's the bigger cities, then it's the counties. We've already seen examples of this occur. We've already seen cities and counties go bankrupt, have we not? You'll see more. The next thing is, you will hear the WAGs say, we need investments, and we need investments to pay off, and we need the rich to become richer. That's because they're the people that put all the money into developing all the new technology and everything. There's The easiest way to sell a lie is by using the truth. Everything I just said is true. It doesn't mean that they need to consolidate 90% of the wealth into one-tenth of one percent of the population for that to happen. But there is some truth to it. So what happens is if you go into this deflationary situation where the cost of money is higher, the returns are lower of actually um, loaning this money out, you end up in a situation where innovation can be really stifled. You know, there's not a new iPhone every year. Oh, I can live without it. I understand, but you have to start thinking about the, the, the deflationary spiral that creates. 
So how many less jobs are there because of that alone? You know, if less people are going to the store to buy a new iPhone, how many people that make 12 bucks an hour at the AT&T store lose jobs? 10% of them? I mean, I don't know, but it's... And then when they have less money to spend, it all cascades. And eventually, since there's less money available, and since there's more risk for less gain, you start stifling innovation. You start putting a cap on how much technology people can really come up with. Does that create its own super cycle that basically puts a cap on how much automation occurs, which then re-inhabits the employment? I don't know. How long do these cycles last? I don't know. I'm just examining what happens when these things occur. The next thing is the elephant in the room. This is the one I said at the beginning that some of you were probably already there. There is an unfathomable disaster in deflation and declining population. And it is the unfunded liabilities of the federal government, particularly Social Security. If you do not have growth in the youthful population, if they are not gainfully employed, and if they are not making significant amounts of income in order to pay significant amount of revenue into Social Security's trust fund, the entire thing shows itself for the Ponzi scheme that it is, and it goes poof. And many of us would go, it's only a matter of time. We all know that's the case. Social Security fits the exact definition of a Ponzi scheme. Because without new investment, the old investors lose. Period. And that is a Ponzi scheme. There's nothing that the money actually is invested in. It's just taken and pissed away by your government with the belief that next quarter we'll be able to take enough in to do it again and pay all the bills. I mean, anybody that says Social Security is not a Ponzi scheme doesn't know what a Ponzi scheme is and doesn't know how Social Security works. It, it's, it, it is one of the leading ways our government raises revenue right now. And, and the amount of money they get to keep to do other shit with is going down is the amount of money they have to pay is going up. And if you get into a deflation period of, let's say, 10 years, let's say it starts now, and we slide into it over five, and five years from now we really start to feel it, and we have a 10-year stagflation like the 70s, at the time when the largest number of baby boomers are coming into the Social Security system, it is a catechism. It, it, I mean, it is it is economic Armageddon for our country. Because if we can't pay those people, what does that do to our economy? How much money do old people spend? Pretty much all that they get. Very few people, when they get into the Social Security years, save any of their Social Security money. They have other investments, hopefully, that, that maintain their lifestyle. They start taking money out of their other pensions and their other private pensions, like 401ks, IRAs. But Social Security, is just it's just gone. It pays electric bills. It buys some groceries. It's given to grandchildren. It's just, they look at, see, this is how most elderly people are. Now, some people do save some of their Social Security. Some people have such low expenses when they're retired that, that they, they're living off interest of their pension funds, and they're throwing the whole Social Security card in the bank. That's a minority, folks. Most elderly people, once they start getting SSI, look at it this way. It's a fixed income. It's all I got but it's never going to go away. And I can spend it today because I know next month it's coming back. And they live in fear that it'll go away, but they never act like it. They always talk about, if I elect a Republican, they're going to take my Social Security away or some stupid shit. But in the end, they spend the money 
like water. Because whenever you get a regular, guaranteed source of income, it becomes your first, most expendable money. So what you have to understand is the billions and billions and billions paid into SSI every year that are paid out go into and circulate through the economy. Now, you, you curtail that even a small percentage through deflation. And bam. Not to mention the, 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 the absolute apocalypse economically if we get to a point where the government begins to default on its ability to pay SSI because it just doesn't have enough money coming into the Ponzi anymore. Which is exact. See, inflation doesn't lead to that. Inflation leads to the old person with a $15, $100 check that won't buy much, but they can still cut the check. Okay? Deflation leads to shit. We owe umpteen billion this month, and we only have five. Shit. What do we do? Print it. Uh, okay. You know we're going to have to do it next month, and next month, and next month, and next month? And Jack, does that lead to inflation? No, because you reach a, you reach a stall point where it can't. You just can't get the economy going. You've put diesel in the gas engine one too many times, and it just won't run now. You have to rebuild the machine. Again, our economy is simply not designed to run on deflation. It, it, it can't function as we consider functioning to mean in a deflation. Now, I actually think a deflationary monetary system, a moderately deflationary moder uh, monetary system, is the number one way to take wealth out of the hands of the elite and put it back into the hands of the individuals. Because it doesn't require any level of political policy. It doesn't require taxation. It doesn't require regulations and rules and laws. It doesn't require anything. It requires honest money. See, the, the problem is, honest money is deflationary. If you think about it, when people say gold is money, I, I, I say gold's a commodity. You've been misled with that marketing speech. But if we used gold as money, it has to be deflationary. Once a population and an economy grows to a certain size, and the amount of gold available is less and less and less, the value of each ounce has to go up. That's not inflation. That's deflation. When the value of gold versus dollars, gold goes up against the dollar because of inflation in the dollar. That's the effect of inflation measured that way. But when we just simply look at gold, if we only had, there were no dollars, it was just gold. The gold bugs get their dream come true. And in that instance, what you could buy with an ounce and a quarter of gold last year, you can buy for an ounce and an eighth this year is deflation. It's deflation. And, and, and that type of economy running that way is an economy that puts control into the hands of the producers. Not the gamblers. Not the predators. And certainly not the non-producers. The, the welfare state. It, it rests the value because a government can't run a Ponzi scheme to pay them to simply exist. It's a great idea. Unfortunately, we have a car that runs on gasoline, and it's not even diesel fuel. It's like cherry juice with some real corrosive crap in it on top of it, like acid, you know, like muriatic acid in cherry juice. 
being put into a Ferrari. So you either have to change the vehicle or you remain committed to forcing inflation, which is where our powers that be are right now. And if they're able to pull it off for another 20 or 30 years, fine. I think it's a very realistic concept that they could. I think it's a very realistic concept that they could fail, and you could have everything I've laid out for you today. Here's the final re reality. This is actually more likely than runaway inflation because it's harder to fight than inflation because it's about real production. We can, If we have too much inflation, we can manually contract the monetary supply in America. All they have to do is, is curtail lending to control inflation. All they have to do is stop printing money. I mean, it, it's actually, and with the volume of money in existence today, inflation is dramatically easy to curtail. It can only go so far, so hot, so fast before it pops its own bubble. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible for it to run away. I'm saying that there's a lot of checks and balances in that system. And again, here's why. When you get in a wreck with a car today versus a car made in 1920, if you're traveling the same speed and hit the same thing, you're far more likely to survive today and you're far less likely to be injured. Why? Today's cars have been designed to run a certain way and provide certain levels of safety based on how they run. Okay, <laughs> The economy has been built to run on inflation. So all the, the airbags, all the safety mechanisms, all the theft deterrent systems, everything in that car to make it safe and reliable are optimized under the assumption that you're going to drive faster tomorrow than you did today. You're going to get on the highway and break the speed limit. Cars today are not designed to run 25 miles an hour all the time. They're not. That's what this is about. You have an economy run by central banks that have tremendous tools to push inflation and control inflation. And the only, the only antidote they have to deflation is to create false inflation. But when you get to a certain point, where there's stockpiles of copper ore sitting on top of the ground and no one wants to refine it because there's no one to buy it to do anything with it. What are you going to do? Print more money? And how are you going to get it into circulation? Who are you going to give it to? What do you think you're going to do? Print a trillion dollars? Divide it by 300 million and send it to all of us? Do you really think they're going to do that? Do you even think that's practical? Do you even think it makes sense? And if they did, during a deflation, what would you do with it? Save it. Windfall money. Yoo-hoo. Vested in my personal wealth, in my mattress. There's not a lot you can do about deflation. Because deflation is about real production. Every person in debt will suffer greatly in a deflationary economy. Because I have not yet paid off my property, that would include me. Now, as long as I have income sufficient to service the debt, it doesn't really matter if I don't want to sell my home. But what about all the people that would want to sell a home in a deflationary economy? You saw this in 2008, 2009, 2010. People that had a house bought the house, not at the absolute top of the market. They could have sold it two years ago and made a profit on it, come on hard times, lose a job, kind of barely scrape by and make the mortgage payments for a couple of months and realize, look, what we're going to have to do is downsize. So they put the house up for sale. Can't get what they owe on it. Can't get out from underneath it. Debt crushes them, the bank takes the house back. 
Banks are like, this is fine. And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 happens everywhere. Millions of houses coming into the market at the same time. Nobody wants to buy them. Banks are like, oh, shit, beg the government for money. Money gives, government gives them money. It didn't kickstart inflation right away. Now imagine that happening and it not correcting itself. Even if the government bails out the banks again, which I don't know if the political will is there to do it, and the banks sit on the houses and everybody goes, don't care, not going to pay that much money for them. And then by the time that starts to correct itself, because it becomes a decade-long pro problem, there's a surplus of housing. See, the exact opposite. The exact opposite happened this time. The population growth, while moderate, is still there, and there's still enough upwardly mobile people coming out of apartments and rent homes that want to buy houses. And when housing construction stopped, it created this boom. Let me tell you what the boom has done here. We sold my father-in-law's house. The closing's actually Friday. It's a two-bedroom house. It's tiny. It's on a tiny lot, and it's a zero lot line. That means that your one property boundary is literally the wall of your neighbor's house and a fence that comes up to that wall. So your yard stacks onto the next neighbor, and then the next neighbor stacks onto yours. Okay? This house is not far from the place I said that I bought like 16 years ago for $84,250. That house was twice as big as this whole house. Twice as big. My father-in-law liked to do crafts and stuff like that and woodworking, and he had an odd sense about him. And as he began to, to lose some of his mental faculties, it became worse. And he did some really weird things in that house that I was like, we're going to have to tear that down and replace that. And why did he take all the doors off the cabinets? And, geez, this house isn't going to sell this way. We're going to have to put... Five, eight thousand dollars into this house, sell it, and we're going to be lucky if we get seventy-five grand for it. But that'll buy him about a year of, of really high-quality care. So that's what we're going to have to do. We get a real estate agent. She comes out and goes, "I wouldn't do anything with this." What? No, I don't think you get your money back if you do that. So what do you think we could sell it for? A oh, hundred or so. What? Right, listen, I wouldn't buy this house for fifty thousand dollars to live in it myself. It's too small. It's it's quirky. And then he made it worse, and it needs a lot of work to fix it. I, my head is hurting here. I was worried we wouldn't get $70,000 for the place. Really was. We put it up for market, multiple offers, several over $100,000, two of them over $100,000 for cash. House sold, $105,000. After inspection, they wanted two off. We gave them one off, $104,000. This house sold for $104,000. This house doesn't make a good starter home. For a guy, a wife, and one kid. It really doesn't. It's not big enough. And if you're going to have two kids, forget it. Right? So the typical American family, this house won't even work for them. What the hell is going on? Well, no homes were built in this market worth a damn since, since 08, 09. They're just starting on construction again. This economy blew up. People moved here. Then, here you go. This is where you start to see the cities comprehending the deflation program, our problem. The city of Mansfield said no new construction under 2,000 square feet so that they can pad that property tax. So if you want a small house in Mansfield, you have to buy one that's already been built. Since the, the, the productivity boom came in and everybody moved here and gobbled up the little houses, there is only a couple to pick from. We got a cash offer for $100,000 plus on a house that I wouldn't even want to live in. I mean... 
you got to really think about that. And that scares me for this market. That scares me for this market. Big time. Scares the hell out of me. All I can say is, man, I'm glad I bought five or four years ago, three years, three years ago now. The, the boom hadn't hit. This house we got for a song. I'll bet my place would sell for close to $300,000 today based on the current market. And we paid two. If I was willing to leave Texas, there'd be a for sale sign in the front yard, guys. Because I'd go somewhere that hasn't had this boom and I'd reinvest that money there. I mean, this is part of this final reality. This is the, the risk of debt right now. Not inflation, deflation. In the end, if it was done right, it's an opportunity to take power away from the elites, though. If you started having the, the cost of goods go down and people return to kind of a Ben Franklin mindset, a penny saved is a penny earned. Like we, That's why I picked him for our segment today. You could go back to the working class American truly having more control over their own individual wealth. The problem is the average person won't be able to comprehend this. I guarantee you most of you are more switched on than the average American. You wouldn't listen to a show like mine. And there's still parts of what I said today you have a hard problem accepting are even possible. Remember what I started out? I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm saying this could happen. And I've laid out a case to you why I think it's more probable than the inflation monster. And what would we do if it happened? Well, I think you'd start to see value in trade. I mean, I think that you're gonna, you want to see barter come back, go into deflation, right? Since I don't want to let go of cash, and you don't want to let go of cash, what do you produce that I want? What do I produce that you want? I think you see a rise in local currencies. I think you see a rise in virtual currencies. I think it's part of an evolution to a new level of freedom if the dodos will figure it out and come along for the ride. But I don't know that they will. And then you get, if you don't get that, what you get is an oppressive state. You get the, the monkeys appealing to authority, government come save us, and they revalue the whole currency like I've been predicting for years. They come up with a brand new currency. They just change the money. Again, they've only done it five times since 1913. But I mean, they change it in a real crazy way. And it increases their power and their control. And they try to jumpstart the machine again. And I think if they do it, maybe they pull it off. But you get like 10 years of the real lumbering Frankenstein monster before it becomes cognizant and starts functioning again. And then even when it does, it's something terrible. So I, for one, am not looking you know, happily forward toward a deflationary economy. But I think if that ends up being the result... Well, I'm willing to be somebody that would adapt to it. I just don't know if because it takes it takes a majority of people adapting to it. So there's there's two ways that happens. Consciously, that the, the the idea of returning value to community, value to your neighbor, and being productive, and valuing productivity, actual functional productivity is embraced, and people just take it and make it. Or it's so much that we've reached the pinnacle of this. We've hit the top of the bell curve that it's, it's just required, that they just can't start the machine back up. I think that's also possible. 
And, and the problem with the second version is it will give the elites time to figure out how to maximize control of even a deflationary economy. If the people embrace it before the powers that be accept it, it could be a great tool to, to, to basically create a, another move toward a stateless society, to further devalue the state, to, to further illegitimate, you know, to make the state more illegitimate than it already is. In, in the minds of people to say, we don't really need you for this. Look what you did. You messed this up. You don't get to fix it. Wish you could, but you've proven you're incompetent. You can't. Go away. But if we end up kind of like forced into it, which is what I think will happen, we're just going to end up with a whole new system of controls and a lot lower standard of living at the same time. And they will play the blame game. The, the Democrats blaming the Republicans, the Republicans blaming the Democrats, everybody blaming the, the minimum wage worker for the kiosks that were going to be there anyway, no matter what the minimum wage worker did or did not do. There were no fast food protest people. Okay, I'm going to finish with that today. If you believe that McDonald's workers went on strike, you have been misled. I haven't met a single person yet told me they couldn't get their Big Mac ever because of a strike. If you can still buy the product from an employee working there, there's no strike. A demonstration is on a strike, and a demonstration can be purchased. And that's what it was. And it's union workers at the federal level whose wages are tied to the minimum wage, even though they make way more, that are behind all this shit to try to get a raise in minimum wage. Think about that. You get a deflationary economy, and we raise the minimum wage at the same time. What will that do? Bend your head around that. With that, I want to uh, kind of wrap things up today. And uh, I thought it'd be fun to just play a song that's uh, about the exuberance of money. This is one of those old songs that doesn't sound old when you talk about the date on it, if you're you know, my age or, or what have you. This is from the 90s, actually September 1990. It's called uh, Money Talks by uh, one, of the, one of the bands that you just were in love with if you were kind of a metalhead in the, in the 80s and, and early 90s, ACDC. Anyway... Uh, Just playing it because it just seems like uh, it just seems like a fitting end to today's show, because it might be an end of an era where money talks. It might be the beginning of an era where value talks. And that's what I'd like to see. I have no problem with money. I have no problem with profit. I consider myself a capitalist in the truest form, not about controlling capital, but be, be able to control my own acquisition of wealth. And I, I don't see money as evil. But I see money as a tool that up till now has been able to buy and control the whole planet. I may be an idealistic person to think that that could ever change. I'm not betting on it, but I choose to see at least the possibility because the first step in creating a reality is to see the possibility. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.